So it's now sometime after 586 BCE. We don't know exactly when. Nebuchadnezzar is firmly in control of the Babylonian Empire, which stretches between Persia and Egypt. Persia is still strong in its own right, but Egypt is very weak and has been for a while now. Up to now, we've been bouncing back and forth between Jerusalem and Babylon, but that's over now. Judah and Jerusalem have fallen. So the story now shifts entirely to Babylon. There's a substantial community of exiles living in and around Babylon. Some are slaves, but many of the upper classes have become administrators in the Babylonian government. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names, they um, had Hebrew names that you can find in the book of Daniel, but we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are some of those who have thrived in the Babylonian culture and do now hold important jobs. So you can bet there are people in government who bitterly resent these Jews rising so quickly, so fast. So let's see what happens in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar is all about power, and he dominates the world through force. He has a gigantic image of gold set up in the Babylonian province. The story doesn't say, but I would assume this is an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but we don't know that for sure. This thing is something like 100 feet tall and 10 feet wide which is a really bizarre proportion. That's like having a statue as tall as a 10-story building with a footprint about the size of a dining room. So another way to think of it is like two and a half shipping containers stacked end to end. Not only are the proportions weird, but that's a lot of gold, even if it's only gold-plated. So right off the bat, we might suspect that this story may be a little on the exaggerated side. Nebuchadnezzar calls all the provincial officials, all the governors, all the judges, all the magistrates, literally everyone in government is summoned for the dedication of this image. Now, Daniel is not mentioned in the story. So we have to assume he is traveling elsewhere on a diplomatic mission or something. Nebuchadnezzar's instructions are announced to the assembled officials. When the music starts, you must all fall down and worship the image King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Anyone who fails to do so will be thrown into the blazing furnace immediately. Well, that's a pretty grim alternative. So as soon as the music starts, all the officials fall prostrate before the golden image. All except Daniel's good friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course. And their enemies see an opportunity. These men are some of the magi who now report to Daniel. They are rivals of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and perhaps they see this as a way to grab power back from Daniel himself by destroying his closest friends. So they go to Nebuchadnezzar and bring charges against the three Jews because they do not worship Nebuchadnezzar's gods, nor do they worship the image of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is furious and summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He threatens them with instant death in the blazing furnace if they do not fall prostrate before the golden image and worship it. Then he adds, no God will be able to rescue you from me. Ha! We know that this is when miracles happen, when God's name is belittled in front of pagans, when a ruler of a foreign nation sets himself up in God's place. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are on solid ground when they reply, even if you throw us into the blazing furnace, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace and from you. But even if he does not, know that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image you have set up. Enraged, King Nebuchadnezzar orders the furnace heated seven times hotter. 
He has his strongest soldiers tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace. The fire is so hot that the soldiers who throw them into the furnace are themselves burned to death. Nebuchadnezzar watches Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego burn, but suddenly leaps to his feet, crying, look, we threw three bound men in that furnace, but there are four men walking around in there freely, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, I have no idea what Nebuchadnezzar expects the son of gods to look like, but whatever he sees is enough for him to approach the furnace himself. He calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you who serve the Most High, come out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego step out of the flames. All the officials crowd around them. The three men are not burned, their hair is not singed, and they don't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar announces, blessed is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to rescue them. Now, I want to pause here to note that this is the only time we've run across any story that specifically links the idea of sons of gods to angels. Earlier in the story, Nebuchadnezzar calls the figure in the fire, that fourth figure, a son of gods. But here he uses the word for angel. This chart is a gross oversimplification, but the ancient lore of Mesopotamia often refers to a high god, sometimes called El. And the stories are often set in a sort of heavenly scene in which the high god discusses the fate of mortals with a council of lesser gods. We've seen that cultural overlay many times in our studies, most recently in the first chapter of Job, right? And we know that the Israelites were born into that culture and that they've had a terribly hard time adjusting to the idea of monotheism. Having only one God who does not recognize any lesser gods and has only angels to do his bidding is a huge theological shift, and it's one the Israelites do not make quickly. Their stories did, of course, feature Yahweh and the angels, but they kept trying to add Baal and Ashtoreth and all the pantheon of lesser gods known in the region. But here in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can actually see the linguistic and theological shift taking place in the words of whomever wrote this story down. Nebuchadnezzar first refers to the fourth being in the fire as the son of gods, which is the Mesopotamian Canaanite view. But here in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as an angel, which would correspond to the monotheistic view. So it's super interesting, I think, to see this shift taking place where we can actually see it in the text. Nebuchadnezzar continues, these men trusted God and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other God, and they were rescued. No other God can save in this way. Therefore, I decree that anyone who speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their homes destroyed. (laughs) Pretty typical uh, dealing with things in this culture, right? And he proceeds to give Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego promotions in the province of Babylon. So you can imagine the stories Daniel hears whenever he returns. According to chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar sends enthusiastic letters throughout throughout his whole empire about the most high God and the many miracles God has done for him. So the stakes are pretty high when things start to go wrong for King Nebuchadnezzar. It all starts with a dream. The dream terrifies Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls in all his magi, the diviners and astrologers and wizards and magicians, but they cannot interpret his dream. Finally, Daniel arrives. Now, Nebuchadnezzar calls him Belteshazzar, 
which the story says is the name of Nebuchadnezzar's God, which actually makes no sense unless Nebuchadnezzar has flipped back over to worshiping other gods, right? This is another signal that these stories may have been cobbled together from separate sources and loosely edited together to form a narrative. In this story, Nebuchadnezzar says that Daniel has, quote, the spirit of the gods in him. So he recognizes Daniel's anointing, but apparently attributes it to a pantheon of gods. Nevertheless, he tells Daniel his dream. In my dream, I saw a huge tree, so huge it could be seen all over the world. Its leaves were beautiful, and it provided shelter to all the creatures of the world and all the birds of the air. It had much fruit that all were fed abundantly. And as I was lying in bed, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven and said, Chop down that tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruits. Let the animals and birds flee, but bind its stump and its roots with iron and bronze. Leave them in the ground and do not destroy the grass of the field. Then the imagery, at least in the language Nebuchadnezzar uses, changes from that of a tree to that of a man. He tells Daniel that the watcher from heaven said, let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let him live among the plants and the animals and graze on the grass. Let his mind no longer be that of a man, but be that of an animal until seven times have passed. This is the verdict, so that those who are alive will know that the Most High has authority over the kingdom of men and will set over the kingdom the lowliest of men. So what does that mean, Belteshazzar? Well, Daniel doesn't want to answer immediately. This dream does not sound good. And when he does understand what it means, he is greatly alarmed. But Nebuchadnezzar tells him, don't be afraid to tell me what it means. And Daniel says, I wish the dream was meant for your enemies, O king. That tree is you. You are the great strong tree filling the earth. You will be the one cut down. You will live like a wild animal soaked by the dew of heaven and eating grass like an ox. After seven times have passed, you will finally acknowledge that the Most High is the true sovereign and gives the kingdom of men to whomever he pleases. But there is good news the stump that is left means that your kingdom will be restored to you after you acknowledge that heaven rules. So do it now. Repent now. Be merciful to the poor and perhaps you will prosper. Well, apparently Nebuchadnezzar does not take Daniel's advice. And nothing happens. It all seems to just go away. But one year later, King Nebuchadnezzar is out walking on the roof of his grand palace in Babylon, looking over the city and saying to himself, look what I have built. And even as the words are still on his lips, a voice from heaven says, your authority is now stripped away from you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You will be driven away to live among the wild animals and eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass before you know that it is the Most High who is sovereign over the kingdom of men, not you. The Most High gives the kingdom of men to whomever he wishes. And so it happens. Nebuchadnezzar apparently falls seriously mentally ill. He is driven away from his palace and lives in the wild. His hair grows long and he is drenched with the dew of heaven. 
His fingernails become long and curved like the claws of a bird. Then at the end of chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar tells us in his own words, the miracle that happens next. He says, I raised my eyes to heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I gave honor and glory and praise to the most high. God's dominion is forever. All of us are as nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases with people and with the army of heaven. No one can hold him back or challenge him. And when I realized that and my sanity returned, my kingdom was restored to me and I became greater than ever before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, give praise and honor and glory to the king of heaven, for he can humble the proud. His works are truth and his ways are justice. Now that's quite a story. And I have to tell you, there is no corroboration whatsoever in the historical records of a gap in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. On the other hand, we don't have a ton of records from back then, and this is the sort of thing that might have been swept under a rug if it had happened. Even Josephus, the Jewish historian writing around the time of Jesus, felt like this story needed a disclaimer. At the end of his version of the story, he says, but no one blame me for writing down everything of this nature as I find it in our ancient books. For as to that matter, I have plainly assured those that think me defective on any such point or complain of my management and have told them in the beginning of this history, I intended to do no more than translate the Hebrew books into the Greek language and promised them to explain those facts without adding anything to them of my own or taking anything away from them. Now, this disclaimer cracks me up, coming as it does from a historian famous for his exaggerations and embellishments and biases. But these stories today do seem somehow different from the ones we've been studying so far. There's a different flavor there, right? So now we're going to jump forward in time. This is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar, and the Bible completely skips over the rest of the kings of Babylon, but we need to know who they are so we can understand what comes next. Early on, Nebuchadnezzar married the daughter of the king of the Medes. You'll remember them as being longtime staunch allies of the Babylonians, and he surely had other wives as well. It is interesting that in Jeremiah 27, 7, Jeremiah prophesied to Zedekiah that this was King Zedekiah, um, that many nations would serve Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his grandson until, quote, the time for his land comes. I, I added that quote in there. So that implies the Babylonian empire falls after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Nebuchadnezzar has at least six sons and several daughters. But he does not leave a clear heir when he dies. And it is one of the younger sons who seizes the throne. His name is Evel Merodach, and he only lasts two years before he's killed in a rebellion. But while he is king, he releases Judah's former king, Jehoiakim, from prison. 2 Kings 25-27 and Jeremiah 52-31 both have identical passages that say Evel Merodach speaks kindly to the former King Jehoiakim and sets his throne above that of all the other kings who are held captive in the Babylonian court. And Jehoiakim of Judah eats his meals in the king's presence the rest of his days and receives a regular allowance for life. So after the coup, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Neraglasar, takes the throne. 
Before that, he was probably just a high-ranking official and may be the one of a similar name who is present at the fall of Jerusalem and is mentioned in Jeremiah 39.3. So things get a little fuzzy here, but it looks like Nereglasar dies and his son, Labashi Marduk, takes the throne. But Labashi Marduk only holds it a few months. He is assassinated in 556 BCE by an Assyrian guy named Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which was Daniel's name. This is Belshazzar with no T in the middle, who is the son of a fairly elderly man named Nabinidus. I'm going to pronounce it that way, Nabinidus. That's probably wrong. Based on Jeremiah's prophecy saying that Babylon's time would come to an end after Nebuchadnezzar's grandson reigns, we would expect Nebuchadnezzar's reign to signal the end of the Babylonian Empire. So let's see what happens. About three years into his reign, Nebuchadnezzar inexplicably leaves Babylon and leaves his son Belshazzar to serve as regent. Nabinidus is gone for 10 years. We know this from history. The stuff I'm showing you here on this screen is not stuff in the Bible. This is from history. Um, so although we have detailed historical accounts of what Nabinidus was up to all that time, he certainly was not interested in governing the Babylonian Empire. Some scholars believe the story we just read in Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar has a long period of mental illness, may have found its source in Nabinidus's very weird absence. He does eventually come back, but he seems to be viewed with suspicion ever after. So I personally think that the Nebuchadnezzar in that story we just read is Nabinidus, that Nebuchadnezzar was being used in that story as a term for the king of Babylon. Um, we've seen that uh, before in our studies of Israel. So I personally think this is the source of that particular story. So now realize that the specifics and the dates and even the players in these world empires are fuzzy. We have conflicting accounts from various sources. So I'm giving you I'm about to give you, you know, a broad outline that will serve for the purposes of the biblical story. But remember to hold the details loosely. It's kind of like picking your way across a stream using stepping stones. We each might select a different set of stones, but they're directionally correct. So I'm sharing the, the details that I think make the most sense here. So here we go. Up until this point in the story, Babylon has been close allies with the Medes to the north. They share bloodlines and borders, but the Medes have been busy in their own right. They've expanded across the entire northern portion of what used to be the Assyrian Empire. Furthermore, during Nabinidus' absence, a strong new king named Cyrus has come to the throne in Medea, but he has much larger ambitions. He seizes power from the Medes uh, between 554 and 550 BCE and begins to consolidate a much larger empire that includes the Persians. Here's an old map showing in yellow the combined empire of the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus begins to identify himself as, as being of Persia. Um, the Babylonian empire is shown in green there along the Euphrates and extending down into Palestine. You can see how it is shrinking. Egypt is in lime green there at the lower left corner. And you can see the kingdom of Lydia uh, has grown up in the West, and it's, it's shown in dark blue. Well, Cyrus of Persia continues westward and sets his sights on the Lydians there in the West, in the dark blue. And it's here that we will stop this week. With the Babylonian Empire ruled by their regent Belshazzar, with an absent King Nabonidus, and a growing threat from the now combined Mede and Persian empires to the east and the north of them. So we will go into our breakout groups here and talk about some of this. There you are. How fun was that? Turn your mics back on so we can hear each other. 
Um, Not enough time. (laughs) (laughs) True. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. So, so the, the setup here was just an understanding that Daniel is like this, this really amazing book that is written in a, completely in a time of transition. It's got, it's written in uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, and it's, it's got all these different kind of words that are in it, and it's got these bizarre stories that seem to be, you know, have roots in myth. Um, and, and then we're going to get to these amazing prophecies and visions that are super important to our understanding of the end times. It's just an amazing book. And I gave just a little, um, a, a small timeline, letting you know that, that the events, of course, I showed you during, while we were talking that the events are back in the 550, 540, you know, 530 area timeline um, in the book of Daniel, this, uh, this part that we're reading, but it's not, it doesn't get written down till around 165 BCE, which I'll explain that date um, in a couple of weeks when we get further down to the end of Daniel. Um, But uh, think about that timeline from 165 to Jesus time, you yeah. know, you've got maybe a hundred years, you've got your 165 years for it to become canon. All right. Yeah. And um, that just, just not, not a lot of time, you know, for something to, it was clearly perceived as important. Those stories from back in the 500s were clearly seen as very important and central, you know, to the Jewish faith even though they didn't get written down till, till much later. And in the um, uh, study guide, I mentioned the council of Yavna in 90 common era era, which would have been just shortly after um, Jesus crucifixion and the fall of Jerusalem. Again, Um, that council, I just added while y'all, while y'all were talking, I added a little footnote in there to tell you that, the authoritativeness of that council is up for scholarly debate, whether there was really a great big council or not. Just know that the Jewish canon was fairly solid and fairly quickly after that, you know, becomes really solid um, sometime between the time of Jesus and, you know, when the, the, in that first several hundred years, they get all, all the bits nailed down but but um jews i mean christians of course don't start nailing down our canon until after jesus death right and all the gospels are written and all the rest of the books are written so we're in this we've just entered into a portal (laughs) of time in the in in the bible where things are mushy uh, and, um, and so I'm trying to pull out some of that for you here. So in, I, I mentioned also that the book of Daniel actually has a, it ends in, in, with chapter 12 in our Bibles, our Protestant Bibles, but the Catholic Bibles include a chapter 13 and a chapter 14, which are part of the Apocrypha. And we're going to actually look at those in a couple of weeks. Um, because when we come to the story that they relate to. So in the story of the big golden image and the burning uh, in the furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I pointed out that the dimensions are like wacky. <laughs> and, and you know, how can it be gold? And, all, um, uh, what did, and I and pointed out that, that Babel, the word Babel is Babylon, in Hebrew, and we already have a story of an extremely tall building back in the early etiologies that that described the building of an extremely tall building, um, and God scrambled everybody's languages, and that and that was the explanation of everybody having a different language. What did y'all come up with in terms of why the big weird image here? We thought. Maybe it's just like 40 means awful big. 
Ben Spinks, a new biblical scholar. <laughs> I can't well, wait, Martha. Talk. Uh, you're muted, Martha. I didn't hear what she said. Could you repeat it? Just that it, it it's like the number 40. It, it just means it's very, very big. It doesn't mean that it's 10 stories high. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we talked about how both of those stories showed how man was trying to become equal with God. Yes. That was their purpose is why they tried to, you know, build something big is yes. because they were trying to show that they were equal to God. That was our thought or one of our thoughts. We had several. <laughs> Yeah. And I was sitting here thinking in my little group by myself, I was thinking that um, it, (laughs) that it might also have to do with Babylon seeing itself as the center of the universe in both of those stories. So Mm -hmm. just, I I just found it very interesting. You know, this is, there's no right answer. So the, the, the cathedrals, um, you know, are built in, in, you can see the spire of this beautiful church in this little tiny town where I'm from for miles away. It draws people's attention. Um, you know, so there's, there's just a practical reason for making them really large. Yes. But they are, I mean, it's a huge, it requires a huge amount of resources, time, effort, and money uh, to do that sort of a thing. Power. And when you the statement control, of power. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good thoughts. Okay, so so question two. Why do you think there's a fourth figure in the fire, the one called son of gods or an angel? Wouldn't it have been enough for Nebuchadnezzar to have seen three figures walking around in the furnace? Marlene. Oh, sorry, I was waving at Julia, but um, <laughs> uh, but, but um I made I made a note from our discussion that um Nebuchadnezzar would have expected to see um, only three figures, even if they hadn't collapsed and you know burst into flames, but that the presence of this fourth figure would have caught his attention and that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had said, our God will, you know, if, if our God protects us, we will survive and your fire can't destroy us. And this fourth image that looked like a son of the gods or an angel would have been very different and would have caught his attention. Mm -hmm. Erica had a great idea on that. Yeah, we were, we were saying that um, the possibility of Nebuchadnezzar equating Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be gods, if it was just the three of them, they may have been, they may have come out and and been equated to be gods that are to be worshipped versus God potentially bringing the fourth to um, give the honor, glory, and praise to the one true God. So that is very, very perceptive. And that is a great (laughs) point that, that God needed the fourth figure there to keep that from happening. Well, Martha brought up, Martha brought up that um, it also reminded her as a uh, transfiguration because there were three humans and one God. Cool. Martha, you want to say any more about that? No. It was a stretch, but I do think, but, but Erica's, I think it was Erica's comment there about Ellen Ellen has the glasses Erica doesn't sorry Ellen's (laughs) comment that um Nebuchadnezzar needed to see that they weren't the gods yes Mm -hmm. that makes sense too yes I think that's that's very perceptive you guys are so good you're on a roll today okay number three the the um Catholic Bible also includes two prayers. They're gorgeous prayers of praise and blessing that are interspersed in this story. 
Um, both of them are attributed to these three young men while they're inside the furnace. The first is called the prayer of Azariah, which was Abednego's Hebrew, Hebrew name. And the second is called the son, song of the three young men. Now they are excluded from the Hebrew Bible, from the Jewish version of Daniel, because these prayers are written in Greek. Okay. So we've got Daniel that has Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek in it, um, which is, I think, amazing. It is just such a diamond in the Bible. Um, and so the, the Hebrew Bible excludes those two Greek prayers because they say, obviously, those were inserted later after the Greek empire took over everything and, you know, doesn't belong there. And uh, the Protestants exclude it for the same reason. The Catholics leave them in. So the question was, given this and some of these, the nature of these stories and how they are different than in tone and feel from so much that we've studied up to now, it's like we're in a, like we stepped into a different room, (laughs) you know, in the Bible, where would you draw the line? Would you use the language? Would you say, well, if it's Greek, it doesn't belong in the Hebrew Bible. You know, it doesn't belong in the Protestant Old Testament, you know, doesn't belong in the Old Testament at all. Or would you let the Greek stand? Uh, Would you let these other stories stand? What would, how would you measure? Where would you draw the line? Not to be humorous, but we decided that was above our pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) You punted. Yeah. It doesn't have to be language. You can use some other criteria. Well, we got into who, how do you figure out what the different councils, what was their lens they were looking for? And it seems like a lot of it has to do with end times. So it's like they're stuck. They're like people today. End times are going to happen tomorrow which they will, but, you know, <laughs> but mm. that's, that's what they say, you know, is they're so wrapped up in the end times that they're missing the here and now. Mm. So they look at the, what happened a long time ago and they look at what is going to happen, but they don't look at what the here and now was. Mm-hmm. And we wondered if that was kind of like one of their yardsticks to how they picked what verses were included and what verses weren't included. Right. And certainly, if you think of it from the Christian point of view, that was certainly their single focus. I mean, they were watching the sky every day for Jesus to come back. They'd Mm -hmm. sold all their belongings. You know, they, this was like happening now. So you could see why they would give weight to that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But on the Christian end, we did not begin really solidifying who we are as Christians from a canonical and theological perspective. There was a lot of dialogue for about 400 years, and then things started to solidify um, and uh, continued and, and there were the choices made, and we will talk about the choices that, that were made and who made those choices. Um, and then, you know, we go, we rock along until 1500 when we've got the, you know, uh, or until we have the Protestant Reformation, right? And um, um, it is important, the question that Renee raises. So we want to make a note to self that when we look at how books were chosen for a particular canon, for a particular religion, much less denomination, but for a particular religion, that we ask the question, who's doing the choosing and what's their stake in this? So this brings up probably a, 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 a question from way out here in left field. Um, do you think that with the ongoing scholarship related to the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, that there will need to be another 
canonical type um, conference of some kind to decide if changes need to be made to the current canonized Bible? I um, The Dead Sea Scrolls, they continue to work on that, but they know the shape of the things that they found. So they know um, which scrolls of the existing canon that they found. And they know which scrolls that they found and have read, you know, which scrolls had to do with the beliefs of the Qumran community who owned these scrolls. And so my short answer would be no, I don't think so. Um, Because I think that, you know, the things that we found are not, are fairly easily divided between, oh, this was what this community believed versus this is more universal, you know? So there's certainly um, some very interesting beliefs in the Qumran community around what the Messiah meant and who that would be, or or the two people that that would be, and some of their um, particular beliefs, because those would have been um, very prevalent during Jesus' time. Uh, as to what Messiah would look like. He, the, the Qumran community was contemporary with John the Baptist and Jesus. So um, it would, in fact, many scholars believe John the Baptist may have been part of that community. So it was just very, it's very interesting to look at that. We won't dig into all that stuff. That will be something you can look up, but um, it is, I do not think that we will have um, additional books added to the canon or anything like that. Okay, there won't be like substantial changes to passages, things like that. No, no. Okay, that's that's my that's that's my gut feel. We've had it out there long enough that I think I think it's solid. Bye bye. Hi Woody. Hi Woody. Mm-hmm. We miss you. Um, I think really. Uh, um, what other? I heard somebody decision whether or not to call another council. I think it would be. Um, uh, I'm not so much sure that it would, I think there would be huge fights over is everything that's in there supposed to stay? Um, I, I just, it would be fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> um, to see what might motivate another council. Yeah, and not not necessarily with the idea that some folks would want some things taken out, but what motivated any group at any given time to get together and who got to be in the council, I cannot imagine wasn't enormously political. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would boggle the mind in today's day and age, right? Mm -hmm. We can't even agree on verses. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so um, if to get back to the question, how would you, what kind of criteria would you, would you use if you were looking at all this material? What, what kind of criteria do you think should be used to determine whether this is part of the Bible or not? I, I was saying one of the, I would, my, my preference would be that people were eyewitnesses to whatever the event was, you know, and that, that, that it was written down fairly shortly after the event happened. But we were saying in our group, you know, we had five of us in our group. And if we all witnessed the same event and all wrote it down, we're all, we have different lenses. We have different trauma. We have different perspective. We have mm-hmm. you know, various religious upbringing. Yeah. Culture, religious upbringing already. So, I mean, it, it, that kind of throws a wrench even in my seemingly perfect have I an eyewitness account. It's still, mm-hmm. still going to have some potential tampering with. And for many yeah. of these stories, they were oral first for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. What, why was that? Cause I was, I was noticing you know, with, with the Daniel you had said in that third paragraph, like, so occurred around 550 BCE, it was written down around 165. Why? Like, why, why so long before some, finally somebody was like, hmm, maybe we should write this down? Or was it written down by others? And this was like the official. The, right. The, it's we, we are on the tail end 
what we have, you know, we're just saying this version of the story that we have is from about this time period because we can see details from around that time in this story, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have all the iterations and we don't know at what point it started being written down. You know, education was a thing back there. People did not write, you know, they went to scribes to have documents written for them and read for them. So um, there was a big oral tradition and it was, and it is still important in the, in the Jewish rabbi training now to memorize ginormous chunks, you know, of, it's, it's still a thing. Um, so. Any other comments on this part? Well, what, what criteria would um, the, the, the people who canonized the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. do we know what criteria they used in that it process? Was, they were looking, um, I don't know. We don't know, you know, the thought process or anything. But except that we know that they rejected things that were written in Greek. Hmm. And it wasn't just, because just it was by, just by virtue of the fact that Greek was not a common language. Right. So that wasn't that part that was rejected in Greek wasn't something that had been translated into Greek. It was some it was Greek added on to the Hebrew. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Were, so uh, how much of the Old Testament besides Daniel actually is looking toward the end times? And if, if the answer to that is not a whole lot, then why did this book get The included? answer is that a lot of the Old Testament looks to the end times in the prophets, and they have a very clear, like, they all got the same message. It's, it's, it's as if they were following a template. It's like, there's going to be this terrible time, you know, of war and destruction and apostasy and people falling away. And the, you know, everything's going to be so bad, you know, be like before Noah, you know, and, and then, and then there's going to be the day of the Lord <laughs> and uh, the, and, and the Lord is going to come and the earth, the mountains are going to melt. The stars are going to fall from the sky. It's going to be a day of reckoning. And then so all, all about that when the Messiah comes, it is the day of reckoning. It is the day of reckoning. And then, and then the Messiah is there and there is a, a, a government set up in Jerusalem, um, in Israel specifically to um, rule God's people, Israel, with justice and righteousness forever, and this kingdom will never end. And all the other kingdoms of the world will stream to Mount Zion. They will, all the Jews, all God's people will be gathered from all the ends of the earth. People will bring bring them from other nations, even if they have to put them on stretchers and carry them to Jerusalem. Um, and so the, and the dimensions of this Jerusalem city are huge and they can't, you know, they won't, they can't physically work unless it's after the day of the Lord and the mountains have been leveled. Cause there's no space that big over there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, 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 for, at, because it's still going to be on a mountain. It's like Mount Zion is like going to be this great, big, humongous thing. And, and so, but all, oh, and then God will spend God will dwell there. That mountain will be where God dwells with his people and life and healing will flow constantly from that place. It, there will be a river that flows from that place that is for healing. And, um, and, and everybody will know there, that God is there and there will be no more war there will no there will be no more attacking of israel you know it's a time of peace so the prophets are all just hugely consistent on this what's different in daniel we are going to get to but daniel has some specifics about the timing of all of this daniel has a series of visions in which he uh, in which God sends 
um, angels to talk to him and tell him, well, the, you know, this many times they use the word times, which we see in, as we work through that, these are years, you know, that's a word for years, but there's a little wiggle room there, you know, um, and we will see Daniel talking about hearing these prophecies about what will happen over this particular period of years, when the Messiah will come, what will happen at the end time. Um, and, uh, and so Daniel is important for understanding that um, for the Jews, because it's just very detailed, specific information. And it has tons of links back to the other prophets, but it's a lot more information. And then it's important to us because Jesus talks about what Daniel said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, Daniel is a big deal. So, so we talked a little bit about why, because there's so much prophecy in Daniel, why Daniel was not included in the Hebrew version of the old testament as a book of prophecy but rather as a book of writings and we were wondering if it was because the other prophets were warning israel before everything collapsed israel and judah that if you don't turn from your evil ways god is going to destroy the nation and then in the day of the lord things will be restored where it had already happened when Daniel, um, you know, the, the perspective of the book of Daniel mm -hmm. was, was written. And so maybe that's why they didn't see Daniel as sh should be included in the prophets. Right. Yes. It's it, yes, exactly. And really the writings at the time of Jesus, it was the law part, the Torah, you know, it's not mm -hmm. really law, but it's the teaching is what that word means, but it gets translated law. And the prophets that you're talking about were what Jesus knew. Those were solid, you know, mm -hmm. the writings were the part that were a little soft and the writings include um, the Psalms, the proper Proverbs, the, you know, Ecclesiastes, the, um, uh, second, first and second chronicles, which are a repeat pretty much of first and second Kings that are second Kings anyway. And, um, uh, as the, some of the history books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, it, these are the horses of a different color, <laughs> um, that are not, you know, encapsulated in the mainline story of God, the Hebrew people. And his prophets that he sent up to the fall of Jerusalem, who then predicted what God and the Messiah, you know, coming. So that the law and the prophets are a self-encapsulated story. <laughs> so it's very interesting. And I, um, and there is no clean way to say, well, this should be in there and this shouldn't. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who think the Song of Songs, clearly that pornography should not be in the Bible, you know? <laughs> and and um, so it's, and there's a lot of scholarly debate about Daniel because of its unusual nature. Um, and uh, I personally would think that it would require a solid grounding in the law and the prophets, a solid understanding of who God is and how God relates to his people. What are the principles here? Which if you've studied the law and the prophets, you know, you could mm -hmm. list them down, you know, how we, how we deal with the marginalized, how we do justice, you know, those things, the things God cares about. God's incredible forgiveness and mercy and patience, the, the, the healing, the wanting of God, the desire, overwhelming desire of God to be with us and to do whatever it takes to make that possible for us. That's the story of the law and the prophets. That to me is the yardstick. 
And anything that comes afterwards that gets pulled into canon really needs to line up. That's how I would do it. And in doing so, what I end up doing by saying that's my yardstick, that actually opens the door wider, perhaps, to writings that we don't necessarily would consider as Bible, right? But they're Mm -hmm. still speaking to us. They're things written in modern times that are speaking the heart of God to us. Is it the Bible? I don't really care. You know, I, I don't care about the lines is my point. You see, I care about how it's presenting the heart of God to the people. So when we get to the New Testament and there's some of these kind of iffier things, just like we're seeing here, where there's some iffier things, it doesn't stop when we get to the New Testament. The New Testament isn't any better at drawing this this picture, you know? I I will cling to what I know about God from the Law and the Prophets. I knew that our group was right when we said the canon of Pastor Gill. (laughs) (laughs) i'm just just teasing i'm teasing (laughs) i know but that's why i think doing this study is so important because without knowing this you can easily get lost yeah Mm-hmm. I, I love that too. I think that it, I like how you said it opens the door. You know, I think that there are so many ways that God continues to want to bring us those principles and re-remind us and re-remind us and, you know, continue to you know, engulf us in his love to be able to then, you know, kind of shine and exude that out, whatever that looks like. But I, I really appreciate that. I, it, it makes me not so tight. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 allows me to feel more open, be more open to the various ways that I, I think historically I've always been a little scared, like uh, that might not be of God. And that, you know, it's like versus if, if these general, you know, if these principles are in it, like God, God can interact with me and continue to encourage me in those ways. Mm-hmm. Not, not that the Bible is not important. I'm not saying that, but in, in many other ways as well that are, that can come directly from him. It stabilizes you and grounds you and roots you in the Bible, but it does not bury your feet in concrete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it seems like it seems like um, in many churches that I have been in, especially when I was growing up, there was this huge emphasis put on, and I can't even remember where this reference is in the Bible, but about not adding one jot or tittle. That's in, yes. Mm-hmm. Jesus said that, you know, I didn't come to yeah. add, to, to de- delete a jot or a tittle from the law. He's talking about those verbal markings that I showed you. The, yeah. and, and, the in, yeah. and, and in revelation, right? And in revelation, anybody like, who adds a word or subtracts a word, you know, it's cursed yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's sort of, it, it, it's so, constricting then um like you were saying ellen the 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 inability to see modern revelation to to modern teachers and and scholars and preachers and even everyday people who have this 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 overwhelming sense of how to express the love and compassion and desire for relationship that God has for us. But their message of necessity would have to be suspect if it wasn't completely laden with scriptural references, because otherwise it's, it's, it's not in the, it's not of the Bible. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And we just get ourselves all turned around doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, it, it it's in some ways it's almost a form of heresy because it's denying a gift mm-hmm. Reject, rejecting a gift yeah it's very it's a conundrum it's it bears thought, it bears oh, thought. i know i was i was told once by 
a pastor or as a part of a sermon is that God has revealed himself fully in the Bible and there's no, nothing else for him to add. And I thought it was kind of strange at the time, but then it was like, okay, I didn't really think about it. But then the more we learn in this class, the more it's like, um, no, you're wrong. <laughs> well, you know, when people, that's a thing. And that's, you know, you hear those, those exact words come out of probably every Protestant's mouth, you know, pre, that's in the tradition, that early tradition. Um, that's a thing. Sola Scriptura, you know, only the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, um, but my response to that, aside from just common sense, folks, and aside from what we're talking about here, is the passage in Romans 1, where God said, I sent you the witness of creation. Mm-hmm. You should know me through that. You know, if if God says God is revealing God's self through creation actively in the new century, you know, in in the in the time of Jesus, creation didn't go anywhere. We would be we would have that same responsibility, right? God is still revealing himself. That's just one of the ways. Well, and I, you know, since we're a Trinitarian community, um, I think we give short shrift to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit isn't contained in a book. Yes. So yeah. That's not the, that's not the, that's not the being of. Right. The mm. Holy Spirit. And that was Jesus's message to Nicodemus, right? It was, you got to be born again. The Holy Spirit blows where it will. That's, I, I love that. I love that that quote. I think it's the UCC that has it says God is still speaking. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I think as long as there are people, God wants to dwell with us and have relationship with us. And you can't have relationship if you're just mediated through this ancient text. That makes no sense. I, you guys know how much I love the Bible and what a source of life it is for me. I, I agree with Jesus. I am not here to take one jot or tittle away. You know, it's just, I also am not going to let it be a baseball bat or a chain to bind you. So we're going to think that this, that this walking in, like we've been talking about, comes out of a sense of fear because um, people are afraid of the slippery slope or of stepping into heresy or, or something. And there's so much fear around that, that they don't dare suggest that there might be other people who are speaking God's truth into this that are consistent with what we see of the nature of God in the Bible. I think that's a lot bigger than just that. Go ahead, Martha. I think that control is a big part of that, which relates to fear. Um, a whole lot of control in that. Yeah. There's, there's power invested in, um, the hierarchies that have been built. The control of the narrative. Yeah. And I wonder too. Oh, go ahead. No, I think you go ahead. Even in getting a visual of some of what we've been reading, watching The Chosen, not that The Chosen has it right, but it just makes you wonder a little bit. The fear and the control is based on humans' attempt to try to bring justice like it it goes so it's almost like we the fear control and lack of justice is what keeps us binding and keeps us from really allowing God to do that for us so we we're afraid like he's not 
big enough to bring justice. Therefore, I have to control and I have to uh, take it upon myself. Uh, so I, that's yes. kind of the what I, I'm I'm starting to wonder, even as I just watched the couple of episodes of The Chosen, where the disciples are so bent on. We have we are the people who have essentially been discriminized and been rejected and abandoned. And, and now he is here to start this war for us because we've been waiting for it. But they, you know, we obviously see it from a different perspective because we weren't there, but that's exactly what we're doing. Like yes. we are trying to control, to try to bring justice that we can't see or experience. We're trying to make God's promises happen rather than yes. let God do it. And it is a form not only of pride and control, it is a form of putting ourselves in God's place, which mm-hmm. is by definition idolatry. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to it's, today's it's story with the statue. Solid ten stories high. Martha. So I was I've been thinking about um, you know, Sola Scriptura and thinking about um, um, people are are oftentimes offered the opportunity to share their testimony. So and that testimony is about how God is moving in a particular person's life today. Okay. Um, And I, so I wanted to mention that. And I wanted to mention the church that I've joined up here um, in the bulletin, um, the scripture readings, the, the, section header for that is called ancient testimony and then it lists whatever the scripture is oh, going to cool. be the preaching is the contemporary testimony cool. and then the title of whatever the sermon is that day and i thought it, in light of our conversation today i thought that was um, really interesting something i had noticed that recently is their tradition in that church yes and we have a personal testimony as you mentioned you know so and and we need to hear and believe each other's testimony so and why would god stop moving why would god stop moving right Right? you know every time i think we're (laughs) i've given up on the idea that humans are so here's a here's a loaded word so evolved um, when we still do some of the horrific things that we do that are the same things that were done when these words were written down, yes. these horrible things that were done, um, these terrible exclusions and acts of violence and yep. well, yeah. It's a, it's a, it, this has been a wonderful discussion, um, but I'm going to, ha- we're going to have to stop because we're way over time. And after a point, the file gets too big for me to actually do. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to lose all this. So I'm going to stop it here and we'll get back together next week. Love to you all. Bye. 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 Bye.